Welcome to this week's message from Vertical Life Church. We exist to awaken and empower you to follow Jesus. To stay connected, find us online at www.verticallife.church. Good morning. How you guys doing? It's awesome to be up here again. I think this is the first time that I have been up here since we have moved back into the school. So there's probably many of you that don't know me, but I'm sure you probably know my email address because it seems like whenever anything controversial is thrown out, you can call or not call, email your complaints to andrew at verticallife.church. And the funny thing is, that's my real email address. So um, take me up on it. So my name is Andrew. I'm an elder here at Vertical Life Church. And if you do know me, you know that I am absolutely passionate about God's Word. I'm passionate about going deep into God's Word. And today I'm going to be teaching out of Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Um, and I'm going to go deep. And so the convenient thing is you have my email. If you have questions, shoot me an email. If you want my notes, shoot me an email. I love answering questions. And I have no problem. I'm an open book sharing whatever I have. So I'm, I'm serious. Take me up on that. So this passage from Matthew 16, I was actually checking it just a few minutes ago before the service. I've been studying this passage for about four years. Um, there's a couple phrases in it that caught my eye about four years ago, and so I've, I've been studying it for a while. And I believe that this is one of the most misunderstood passages in Scripture. It's one of the most important yet misunderstood, and so I want to bring some clarity today. So today, the, the topic of this sermon or the title is called The Gates of Hell. It's called The Gates of Hell. And uh, it's actually going to be part one of a two-part series. Uh, next Sunday is not going to be the second part. It'll be some part in the future. Uh, but there's two phrases in this passage, the gates of hell and the keys of the kingdom, that really caught my interest and in, in is why I focused on this. And so today I'm going to hit that first one. And the goal is pretty simple. You know, the, the title is kind of ominous, but the goal of today's sermon is to make much of Jesus. And so I'm really going to push uh, and make an effort to do that. At one point in the sermon, there will be a bit of an excursion I take to kind of take a 30,000-foot view of this spiritual battle that's been going on um, in our world and in the heavens you know, for as long as mankind has been around. And it's really important that I take that excursion because it provides really important context to understand what the phrase gates of hell actually means. And, you know, this, when I do this, there's probably going to be, you know, maybe some of you guys have heard this. If you haven't, it might sound a little bit crazy. Um, and that's okay if it does. And I encourage you guys to do your own research and fact check me. A great place to start is this book. You know, I've kind of feel like there's two people that it doesn't matter what denomination you're a part of, you like them. The first one is Francis Chan, although I think that might be changing a little bit, but historically, everybody loves Francis Chan. Dude's awesome. The other one, he's a little bit lesser known, but it's this guy named Michael Heiser. He wrote a couple books. He's a Bible scholar. This is one of them. It's called The Unseen Realm. But if you want to go and look into what I'm talking about today, a great place to start is this book. I promise you, if you guys get this book, your minds will be blown. And if they're not, you can complain and email me, Andrew at Vertical Life Church. So I'm going to start. I'm going to pray. So Holy Spirit, we just welcome you here. Your word says that you are the one that gives us the ability to hold and carry and understand your word. And so we invite you to come in this room right now. 
We thank you for humility and we thank you for your knowledge, God, but we just ask in all humility that this knowledge doesn't puff us up, that we don't become prideful before you. And so we thank you for what you've revealed. We thank you for what you're about to reveal. We thank you that what you're going to reveal when you return. And we just ask that you keep us humble before you, God. If there's anything that's not of you that's in our thinking, we ask that it be removed. If there's anything that's spoken today that's not of you, I ask that it fall flat and die. But anything that's spoken of you, God, I ask that it pierce the hearts of myself and the people in this room. And this knowledge builds us up so that we can grow in maturity until we attain full maturity when Jesus Christ returns. In Jesus' name, amen. God is good, huh? All right, Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? Never in the history of creation has a more important question been asked or will ever be asked than this question. Who do you say that I am? This question, your eternity, every person that has ever lived eternity hangs on their answer to this one question. It's a question that every man, woman, child, anyone who's ever lived or will ever live will answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? If you say he's just another guy, you know, what are we doing? Go on and live your life. Pursue the things of the world. Get rich, get wealthy, get lucky, get whatever you want to get. But if your answer to this question is, Jesus, you are the son of God, it should affect every area of your life. Because if he is the son of God, if he did the things that he said and that this word says that he did, he is the lamb that, like we sung today, is worthy of what? Everything. Your 401k, your cars, your house, your children, your life. He is worthy of it all. This question is important. And this is the first time that he directly asks his disciples this question. And Simon Peter, the man, not perfect, but he has some moments. This is one of them. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Man, he hit it. How, how would you have liked to have been the first guy to say that? Isn't that crazy? Sometimes we like tear these guys up. But this was like Peter, a normal dude. He's the first guy that said you are the Christ. Just thought of that. And that blows my mind. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound on earth, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed on earth. And so, now is when we dig into context. It's pretty frequent that I have people make statements to me and they say things like, man, I just, I feel like I'm stuck in God's word, or I read it and I just feel like I don't get much from it. Or even sometimes I just, I don't even know where to start. And I'm convinced that the issue behind most of those statements 
is context. It's context. Context is understanding the story behind a passage. And I'm telling you, if you would take the time to learn how to and to actually do the research in order to understand context, the story, the who, the what, the when, the where, the how, all those details, I'm telling you the word of God will come alive. I guarantee you that the word of God will come alive. I'm telling you, this is what you're missing. And so today, you know, we're going to talk about this passage, but really my intention is to emphasize context, to show you research and how it can really bring a lot of life into the word of God. But the thing is, context, research takes work, and we don't want to work. We want to be lazy. And so it takes work, right? What does Jesus say? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The word of God is a big part of the kingdom of heaven. What do you have to do to get to a treasure hidden in a field? You got to dig, right? And the deeper you dig, what are you going to find? The more ancient the treasure. It's the same principle. But it takes work to dig. So context. Let's dive in. The book of Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Everybody hated tax collectors, except for the Romans. They loved them because they made them rich. But the Jews hated the tax collectors. Something interesting to note about Matthew is he left great wealth to follow Jesus. The dude was loaded, and he gave it all up. His book, ironically enough, was written to the people that hated him, the Jews. The theme of Matthew is Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Matthew wanted to prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, who filled all the Old Testament prophecies, which is why there's such a huge emphasis, specifically in the book of Matthew, on the Old Testament prophecies. The gates of hell is one of those. This event, this statement that Jesus made, it took place very late in Jesus' ministry. He was in an area called Caesarea Philippi. I'm going to butcher that. It's okay. But he went to this place, which was 140 miles north northeast of Jerusalem. Think about that. They didn't have cars. Jesus made a trip 140 miles northeast of Jerusalem. That's a long way to walk. That's important. We'll talk about that in a little bit. These events happened at the foot of a mountain called Mount Hermon in Caesarea Philippi. So... I just read that passage, Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about the events that happened around that passage. They're going to put up a slide. You can see that the same order of events took place in all three synoptic gospels. So synoptic is a fancy Bible word that means the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were very similar. John was different. But you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They remember different things. Like in a week of life of Jesus, Matthew might have written about what happened on Tuesday. Mark might have written about what happened on Wednesday and Thursday. And Luke might have written about what happened on Tuesday and Sunday. You see what I'm saying? But in all three of these Gospels, this order of events are recorded, which means two things. One, the Holy Spirit wanted to emphasize it. And two, it was important enough to those guys that they remember to write it down and write it down the same way. It's just an important point of emphasis. So Jesus asked this question, who do you say that I am? Peter answers rightly. Jesus makes these promises. And then if you continue to read, Jesus openly reveals his plan to die on the cross and be resurrected. He just comes out and says it. It's a big deal. He then tells his disciples, he then reveals that he's going to be resurrected after he died. Then this is where the famous scripture comes where he says, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. So he reveals the next part of his plan. 
for his followers to follow him and die the same way that he died. After that, he then goes up this mountain, Mount Hermon, and that's where the transfiguration takes place. So the transfiguration is where Jesus is up on the top of this mountain with Matthew, Mar- or, uh, sorry, Peter, James, and John. And then all of a sudden, he's like turned into his fully glorified heavenly state. Like his face is shining brighter than the sun. You can read his description in the beginning in Revelation. Hair white as wool, you know, like the feet of bronze. Like he's in this fully glorified state. It'd be like standing next to the sun. Crazy, right? And then scripture says this glory cloud comes, which I don't even know what that is, but it came. And then a voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. In addition to that, Moses and Elijah appeared there and he was talking with them. He was basically confirming that he was the son of God, right? And then God was also confirming it from heaven. So right after this transfiguration, they come down the mountain and then there's this boy that they meet who has a demon that his disciples can't cast out. And Jesus casts this demon out. And then it says that he set his face towards Jerusalem and he began a 140 mile intentional journey to the cross. So that's what's going on here. Okay, more context. Mount Hermon. You have to understand the history of Mount Hermon if you're going to understand what the term gates of hell means. So to date, Mount Hermon has one of the highest concentrations of temple ruins out of any mountain on earth. There's 30 ruined temples on this one mountain. Most of them are to the Greek god Pan. This area was actually called Panias by the Greeks because of the Pan worship that happened there. There's temples to Zeus and Baal, among others. But at the time of Jesus, these weren't temple ruins. They were active temples. Now, this is the excursion, okay? Hang with me. Have you ever wondered where these gods came from? Pan and Zeus and Baal and Moloch and Ashtaroth and all these different gods that are named. Have you ever wondered where they came from? If you're like me, for most of your life, you thought that they were just made up. But if you dig a little bit deeper into scripture, you find a different story begins to surface. They're actually real. Exodus 12, 12, God says, this is at the Passover in Egypt. He says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. In this passage, we see a clear distinction between the Lord, Yahweh, and the gods of Egypt. The word gods there is the Hebrew word Elohim. Not only do we see a distinction between the two, but we see God as good, and we see these Elohim as bad, which is why God has to execute judgment on them, because they are bad. So there are bad Elohim. What is an Elohim, and how do they become bad? An Elohim is a spiritual being that was created by God. So God was not created. God created everything. He made us physical beings, but he also made spiritual beings that the Bible calls Elohim. An example of an Elohim would be like Michael the angel. Angels are Elohim, right? In addition to good angels, we also have bad angels like Satan, right? He was good, but he became bad, and he convinced other people to become bad with him, and then they came down to earth and started doing bad things. Lots of bad. And so, again, if you were like me growing up, you thought that there was only one time where Elohim became bad, 
And that was when Satan became prideful, wanted to worship for himself and convinced a third of the angels to fall. That is true. That is one. But there are also two other crazy stories in the Bible. I'm going to talk about them. And so they're going to put a slide up if they haven't already. The first one is Satan and his angels. There's some scripture. He became jealous and prideful, wanted to worship for himself. God said, nope, worship is for me. Get out of here. Cast him to earth. Number two is really, really interesting. You have to kind of combine a couple of scriptures to see the story. Some of the key ones, Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, and Psalm 82, 1 through 7. I don't have time to read them. But basically what happened is after the Tower of Babel, God took the people of the earth, confused their language, and spread them out over the whole earth. That's why there were people everywhere. And when he did that, he also took his Elohim, his created angel people, and he put them to govern all of these different regions around the earth. I know it sounds crazy. Fact check me. And over time, just like Satan, these Elohim desired to be worshipped themselves, themselves, and they fell. They became bad, which is why there are gods in Egypt that are actually real, bad, angelic, or heavenly beings that the Egyptians worshipped. They were so bad that God executed judgment upon them. Another really, really clear example is with Daniel in Daniel 10, 13, where Daniel's praying, he's praying for something, and then one day an angel appears to him. It was Michael or Gabriel, I can't remember which, but appears to him and says, hey, I started coming right when you started praying, but the prince of Persia resisted me, and so I had to go get angel help so that I could break through to come and assist you. This prince of Persia or principality of Persia was a bad Elohim that had authority to govern and rule in the spirit over this region of Persia, but they were being worshiped rather than directing people to worship God. So much so that if an angel wanted to come into that region, he had to fight to come into the region. So I just want you to see there are real bad Elohim. Number three is even crazier. It's this story in Genesis 6 of more Elohim desiring to come down and have relations with women. And so they actually came into this earth, into this earth, had relationships with women, and developed this giant race of people called the Nephilim. If you read the Old Testament, the Nephilim, Anakim, uh, Rephaim, Anak, Og, Goliath, these are all the offspring of a Elohim and a physical woman. The name Nephilim actually means the living dead. So it means something that's alive but dead. So God created Adam, right? And then through Adam, all of us came. So God is our father. We are all made in the image of God. But these Nephilim, their father was not God. Their father was fallen Elohim. So they did not hold the image of God. They were evil. They were soulless. So they were alive physically, but they were dead spiritually, which is why they did so much bad stuff. And this is all over the Old Testament. Go read Deuteronomy chapter 1, 2, and 3. They're named there multiple times. And so what you see is the Israelites in Egypt, right? God executes judgment on the bad Elohim. Then they come through the desert to the promised land. Do you remember what happened? They sent scouts in. What did the scouts say? Oh, we can't go in there. There's Nephilim. There's giants. We can't beat them in battle. So God sent them back into the wilderness. They were there for a generation. Then some bold guys came back and led them in, right? So now they're going into the promised land. And this is really, really interesting. God commands them 
to devote to destruction certain nations. Wipe out every man, woman, and child, which seems harsh. Other nations, he says, just drive them out. Why the distinction? Every nation that God commanded them to devote to destruction was a nation that was associated with the Nephilim. So God was using the Israelites to wipe out this bloodline. So all of these fallen Elohim desired to be worshipped. They're false gods. This is where we get the Pan, Zeus, Moloch, all those guys. When God is worshipped, his presence enters the temple, right? We are the temple of God. When we worship, like he loves to indwell the temple of our hearts and be with us. I believe that these fallen Elohim are similar. They like to be where they're worshipped, which is why they liked to be at Mount Hermon. So Mount Hermon is located in what was known in the Old Testament as the region of Bashan, okay? Bashan literally means place of the serpent. So Caesarea Philippi at Mount Hermon was located in the region called the place of the serpent. Joshua 12, 4 through 5 says King Og, who was a Nephilim, ruled over Mount Hermon in Bashan. Church tradition in some extra-biblical books, believe that Mount Hermon is where the rebellion of the Beni Elohim, the sons of God, occurred when the sons of God came down um, into earth to have relations with them, and they believe that that happened at Mount Hermon. So, I know it's a lot of information, okay? But look, because Mount Hermon was associated with all of these falls, all of these Elohim, the place was called the gates of hell. So the same way that we talk about like Chicago, we say Chicago is the windy city. The people of this time called Mount Hermon the gates of hell. So it'd be like two soldiers, right? One of them says, hey, I got deployed. Where'd you get deployed to? Caesarea Philippi. The other guy looks at him and says, hey, while you're there, are you going to check out the gates of hell? He's like, nah, I'm not into pan worship. That's the way they discussed this region in the time. It was literally called the gates of hell. Jesus knew this. His followers knew this. The people who read Matthew knew this. But we don't know this because we don't have context. The enemy of the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of hell. This was the enemy's territory, which is why it was called the gates of hell. So, more context. Why gates? Why not just hell? What's the significance with the word gates? To understand the significance of gates, you need to look at how the Bible uses the term, which is another really important principle in studying the Bible. Look at how the Bible uses the term if you want to understand how it's used here. So Dr. Michelle Fleming, I'm going to put a quote up. I'm going to read it. She summarizes it really nicely. So this is how the Bible uses the word gates. The gates of a city were very significant. The gates were shut at nightfall because they were the chief point from which the enemy attacked. Idolatrous acts were performed at the gates. Battering rams were set against the gates. The gates were broken down and burned with fire. The gates were seats of authority. At the gates, wisdom was uttered. Judges and officers served at the gates, administering justice, and the councils of state were held at the gates. The word was read at the gates. Prophets proclaimed God's message from the gates. 
the people also had to enter through the gates to worship the Lord. There's like 10 sermons in there. I'm going to highlight one of those verses. And you're going to see this all start to come together, okay? Judges 5.8. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. That word new also means different. The word gods, guess which word it is? Elohim. Rice. So, when new or different gods or Elohim were chosen, what began? War. Where? In the gates. When people began worshiping fallen Elohim, war began over spiritual authority because people began to look to fallen Elohim as their authority rather than to God. We give access to what we worship. When people began worshiping fallen Elohim, the fallen Elohim had access to them and then were able to grow in authority. Exodus 12, 12 was an example of God putting the fallen Elohim in their place, which he likes to do. Picture any battle scene you've seen in any like medieval or pre-medieval movie. What do they attack first when they're attacking a city? They attack the gates, right? Battering rams, all that stuff. Why do they attack the gates? Because whoever controls the gates controls the city. Whoever controls the gates has authority over what or who can access the city. The gates represent authority and access. The gates of hell represent the authority the fallen Elohim had because they were granted access by men when men began worshiping them rather than Yahweh. Jesus was not a fan. So he travels 140 miles out of his way. I say everything I've said to say this. Jesus intentionally travels 140 miles out of his way to a place called the gates of hell, to Bashan, the place of the serpent, to Mount Hermon, which is in the middle of the most active worship center of fallen Elohim, on the mountain where the Nephilim used to rule, to the place which represents the center of the enemy's territory, rule, reign, and power. He went to the enemy's HQ, their headquarters, their stronghold. And this is the place Jesus chose to reveal his true identity and his whole plan. Why? Why did he do it here? Because he wanted to. That's why. He was declaring war on the gates of hell, and he wanted to do it from the place that represented the center of the enemy's power, authority, and access. This would be like George Washington getting on his horse, driving onto the coast, getting on a boat, going across the Atlantic, traveling to the palace in England, going into the king's office, kicking him out of his chair, picking up his pen, signing the declaration on his desk, standing up, pointing at him and saying, it's on. As Heiser says, Jesus was putting the spirit world on notice. He was starting a war. I don't have time to read it, but go read Psalm 68. It'll blow your mind. Jesus was saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. And there is nothing you can do 
to stop me. He was doing this in front of the disciples, which represented mankind, Moses, which represented the law, Elijah, which represented the prophets, and the temples, which represented the fallen Elohim. For all to see, he was declaring war. Hear me. If you take one thing away today, I hope that you take this. Jesus is not soft. Jesus is not soft. He is tender, yes. He is gentle, yes. But he is not soft. In fact, he is referred to as a stone or a rock at least 17 times by my quick count. I'm sure there's more in Scripture, including this gem, Matthew 21, 44. Jesus speaking, he says, The one who falls on the stone is broken. He's the stone. Whoever falls on him is broken. But whomever the stone falls on will be crushed. In order to turn a stone into something useful, what do you have to do to it? You have to break it. You have to chip it, chisel it, refine it, polish it, and then it becomes something useful. What happens when you crush rock? It turns into powder, dust, gravel. It's useless. Do you want to be refined and shaped or destroyed? Because Jesus is in the business of doing both. Luke 9.51. This is right after Jesus casts the demon out of the boy. It's at the end of these order of events. And I'll tell you guys, this scripture messed me up this past couple weeks. Jesus declares who he is, declares his plan, is transfigured, casts his demon out of a boy, and then the word of God says that he set his face toward Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem. Look, I have to go to the dentist. I have to do the dishes. I have to take out the trash. I have to take an exam. George Washington set his face to fight for America's freedom. Martin Luther King Jr. set his face to fight and die for equal rights. Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. He didn't have to. He set his face towards it. He embarked on a 140-mile intentional journey, determined, set, his face fixed, his gaze set on the cross because he was going to war. He didn't just endure it. He pursued it. Do you know what that means? Come on. I'm not hearing you. Do you know what that means? That means I picture like, I picture Jesus at the top of a mountain with like a sunset behind him with the wind, like blowing his hair, his face is like sunburnt and like aged because he's just been running so hard for the last three years. And he's like staring 140 miles at Jerusalem, passionate and determined, set to die for you, to die for you because he loved you so much. It's so different than like the weak Jesus on the cross. Like he went and he was weakened. He was suffered. I don't want to lessen any of that, but he was determined to die. He was bold. And when our savior sets his face on something, when our King sets his face to something, there's nothing that can be done to stop him. So remember before when we were talking about, um, the devotion to destruction, right? When Israel was going in to wipe out the Nephilim and God commanded them to devote them to destruction. Guess what Hebrew word that is? Devote to destruction is the Hebrew word harem. It's the verb form of the noun Herman. 
Mount Hermon. It's the same word. One used as a noun, the other used as a verb. Mount Hermon literally means the mountain devoted to destruction. The gates of hell were on Mount Hermon. The gates of hell, the seat of evil, was devoted to destruction from the day it was named. Come on. Let's go. Is that not crazy? That means every time that someone talked about Mount Hermon, they were prophetically proclaiming that Jesus would devote it to destruction. Every time today that we talk about Mount Hermon, we, whether we know it or not, we are remembering that Jesus devoted the gates of hell to destruction. Does that not blow your mind? I just want to scream right now. Like, uh, it's crazy. Jesus's goal is clear. He came to devote to destruction the gates of hell. That's why he came, the seat of Satan's authority, so that he could establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. He was declaring war on the kingdom of darkness from their own headquarters. His face was set, and there wasn't anything anybody could do about it. Worship team, you can come up. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis twenty-two seventeen. We're going to look at this promise as we get ready to close here soon. And this is like the one promise that God made to Abraham that nobody knows. Nobody talks about it. I read one book by um, Derek Prince where he mentioned this in one line. I've never seen it talked about anywhere else. I don't get it, right? If we went through the room and I was like, hey, what did God promise to Abraham? Everyone would say like, descendants as numerous as the stars, the sand of the sea, right? They would take the land, you know, curses and, and blessings. Whoever blesses Abraham is blessed. Whoever curses him is cursed, right? The whole world will be blessed. That's all incredible. But there's a promise that nobody talks about. There's another one. So context, Abraham led his son up a mountain because God told him to sacrifice the son of promise. Just before Abraham sacrifices his son, Isaac, God tells him to stop. And he provided a ram for Abraham to sacrifice instead. Abraham then names the mountain. Remember this. He names the mountain, the mountain where God provides. Abraham names it the mountain where God provides. And then he makes this incredible promise. God promises Abraham in Genesis twenty-two seventeen that your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies. Their enemies are hell. God was promising that his offspring, which includes Jesus and us, would possess the gates of hell. Just like Abraham and Isaac, God led Jesus up the mountain where he proclaimed his death to provide what? a way for us to be liberated from the authority of our enemies and to remove their access to our lives. Abraham's promises fulfillment began in Matthew chapter 16, verse 20, 13 through 20. Remember what Abraham renamed the mountain, the mountain that God will provide. The mountain known as the gates of hell has now become the mountain where God provides. The place where the enemy had authority in your life has become the place of God's provision. The point of our greatest weakness is meant to be the place of his greatest provision. Jesus is a warrior king who stands in the gates of our, of our lives 
He stands in the gates of our greatest weakness. His face is set to stand there and there's nothing that anybody can do about it. Another way of saying this is God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. This is what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. God's power is made perfect in our weakness because when we aren't good enough, but we choose obedience, the power of God will come and give us victory. God wants to take your point of weakness and make it a place of strength. Like Jesus and his disciples, we all stand at the gates of hell and we must answer this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Our answer to this question is the gate through which we enter the kingdom of heaven, which is what John 10, 10 says. There's a resistance to entering and helping others to enter. The resistance is the gates of hell, which represents the authority of the enemy, the fallen Elohim. Fortunately, Jesus went right to the gates of hell themselves and has proven his dominance over them. By ourselves, we're powerless, but we serve a warrior king whose face is set to stand in the gates of our weakness. In him, we possess the gates of our enemy, and whoever possesses the gates controls the city and has won the war. How do you open a gate? With a key. There's a teaser for the next sermon. The keys of the kingdom. So I'm done. I'm going to close. The worship team is going to play. Prayer team, you guys can come up. Um, If you need prayer for anything today, just come and get prayer. It's worth it. Um, And so, you know, the whole theme of this service has just been the magnificence of Jesus. And so as you guys stand, let's just keep that going, okay? Let's just, you know, think through what I just preached. Think about what Jesus did. Think about what he laid down and what he earned. And let's just all worship him while keeping him in the center of our attention right now. Thank you for listening to this week's message. To stay connected or find more information about Vertical